Hey, it's John from CityCast. If you're in the mood to pamper yourself a little bit this week while supporting cruelty-free products, you should check out Bone Cur Home and Wellness. It's the best place in Portland to find everything from chic home decor to cannabis accessories. They've got a curated collection of vegan and cruelty-free home goods and wellness products because their name is French for kind heart, after all. You'll get a 20% discount on your first order when you sign up for emails this week at boncoeur.net. That's B-O-N-C-O-E-U-R.net. And use the code BONCOEURCITYCAST20. recent nationwide survey ranked Oregon as the second worst state in the country at addressing residents' mental health needs. We're sandwiched between Utah and West Virginia for perspective. So why is it so hard for people in our state to get help? And could this at all be contributing to some of the problems we're seeing in our streets? Today on the show, we're talking with Oregonian reporter Nicole Hayden, who recently published an in-depth examination of our state's mental health system, and she's going to walk us through what she's learned so far. It's Wednesday, October 25th. I'm Claudia Meza. And this is what Portland's talking about. Your article was so dense. It it was like eight articles in one article. (laughs) So I'm so happy you're here to help kind of pull that apart and walk me through it. You know, two things you mentioned in your article is possible reasons for Oregon being one of the worst states in the country uh, concerning addressing mental health care uh, was like lack of access to services and then our rising cost of living. But couldn't we just say that about the majority of the United States? Like, why is Oregon struggling even harder? For sure. Yeah, it was really puzzling. We spent months looking at this data saying like, you know, all the reasons experts are telling us we're so bad seems to be the same reasons in other states. So why is this data appearing as it is? And part of me still feels just as confused as everyone else does. But, uh, you know, what we found is that we rated so terribly, mostly because of the number of people um, experiencing some sort of mental health illness here compared to other states. We have many more people self-reporting that they have a mental health diagnosis or they have a mental health condition that's not being treated. And, you know, when you have a mental health issue that isn't being treated, the symptoms can compound and become worse and more acute. And, you know, something as simple as anxiety and depression or ADHD could turn into psychosis if things um, aren't treated properly. Wait, wait, hold on. Uh, Depression and ADHD could turn into psychosis? So I feel like we'll have a good example when we talk about the child we profiled. Right, right. It's just because I know so many people who have depression and ADHD and like, you know, they're like nowhere near psychosis. So that's why it just Mm -hmm. seems like such a big label, you know? Oh, yeah. So I guess I wouldn't say turn into, I would say like maybe their symptoms are appearing like depression and anxiety at the forefront. And when they're not treated with like early on preventative care, the symptoms become stronger. And what we thought was something smaller to handle actually is this 
bigger mental health condition that's going to take more resources to treat. But if we kind of um, support the person early on, they wouldn't be struggling as much as uh, they are now. That makes a lot of sense. So what I'm hearing is that there's a possibility that Oregon is is just very honest when it comes to reporting their mental health. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the question we asked over and over. Like, are people just more willing and feel safer and more comfortable in the state of Oregon to say that they um, have these symptoms and that perhaps they were diagnosed? And the experts we talked to said probably in the Portland metro area, that could be true for a lot of people. But, you know, where we're seeing the most difficult um, things to address as a state is when we get to the rural parts of Oregon, you know, and experts surmise that those folks probably still have the same kind of fears of acceptance and uh, stigma and perhaps aren't being outwardly uh, labeling themselves to their neighbors that, you know, they are experiencing this or that. And at the same time, um, the further you get outside of the Portland metro area, the more scarce resources are. I see. I see what you're saying. It's like one of those things, like a chicken egg thing, like where you're just like, well, I don't know if it's the underreporting or if it's the lack of access from rural counties. And then, you know, is that what you're saying? Yeah. The survey that we were reporting on, which is a nationwide survey, we were pretty skeptical of the data, which is why we initially started looking into it. And so we, our mental health series is ongoing, trying to uncover all of our unanswered questions still. Um, something you did bring up, though, concerning access, because you're just like, all right, well, let's, if it's access, let's get into why. You brought up the mental health parity law. Could you explain that to someone who maybe not you know have heard about it? Because I, I hadn't. So uh, mental health parity essentially means that we're supposed to make mental health care as accessible as physical health care. And a lot of people understand that as like um, the cost should be similar, but in actuality, what it means is that the process for how we make things accessible should be the same. So, you know, if the state approves uh, so many pediatricians to be covered by Oregon Health Plan, Um, Are they also going through the same process to make the same number of like child psychiatrists available that Oregon Health Plan will cover? And it doesn't necessarily mean those things will cost the same. Right. Because from what I read, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, people with means, they're able to pay out of pocket for therapists, for mental health, you know, for a psychiatrist, for all these things. And so a lot of, of therapists and psychiatrists aren't taking OHP because the reimbursement for those services isn't as high as just, you know, dealing with the wealthier residents of Oregon. And so because of that, the the rural residents, you know, people of color, um, people with less means, they're not getting the mental health support they need. Did I get that right or? Yeah, that's correct. So, You know, when Oregon Health Plan is asking doctors to kind of be on what they call a panel, as in these are the doctors that have agreed to take OHP, you know, they can go into negotiations where the doctor says, like, no, that reimbursement rate is not high enough for me. Like, 
I can't pay my bills with that. And then the state will negotiate and say, well, what about this? And they go back and forth like you would in a salary negotiation. And so what we've been hearing is that um, the state is not engaging in the same kind of negotiations with mental health providers. They say, hey, we would like you to take OHB patients. This is what we're willing to reimburse you with. And they, you know, a lot of providers say like, no, that's not even going to keep the lights on in my office. And then the state, what we hear is that the state doesn't then counter with a higher offer. And that's would be an example of a parity violation, mm. that they're not doing the same attempt that they are with the physical health. And Oregon was at the forefront of parity laws, but so why aren't we better than this? And it's we found it's because the state is actually not properly policing their laws. They put these in place, but they're not holding people or themselves accountable. So basically you're saying, you know, yeah, there's supposed to be laws in place. You know, the state isn't really holding themselves accountable. So now a bunch of people that need these services are kind of falling through the cracks. But uh, like in your article, you talk specifically about Grayson Painter and his family. And his story seems to outline a lot of the issues with our state's mental health crisis. Like, can you walk us through what happened? So I'll just give some context. Uh you need to be able to find a therapist before you can even get to the discussion of do they take your uh, insurance or not. And part of the thing with Grayson's story is that he couldn't even find services. So Grayson Painter, when he was about nine, was initially diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and oppositional defiance disorder. And because of this, um, he was initially put on Adderall. And with that, his doctor required that he come in for weekly therapy appointments to make sure, you know, he was responding to it well and he would receive the support he needed. And that's kind of what we expect a system to look like. And so at the time, he was living in Missouri and then Illinois. It wasn't until when he was about 13 that his family moved to Oregon. And when he moved here, um, you know, his mom was trying to get him the same kind of care but they couldn't. Um, so his treatment plan began to unravel. And since uh, they kept being told it would be months before he could talk to a mental health professional, they had to heavily rely on emergency care. And so as he gets further into his teen years, he is showing different kinds of symptoms that are more um, intensive than what he first displayed as a child. He, his mom describes him as like kind of hazy, like his mind, he's there, but his mind is kind of elsewhere. And by the time he was 19, he was officially diagnosed with bipolar and schizophrenia disorder. And he was really struggling to find the most appropriate medication. And that can be a really disheartening thing um, when you're struggling with these symptoms and then you're put on medication that's supposed to help you. And sometimes, you know, it can make issues worse. It can not quiet the thoughts in your head. And that's what he kept experiencing. And he couldn't get consistent care. So it was hard to get, you know, regulated on the right medication and on a right supportive plan. And so then he started self-medicating and that kind of propelled him into a tangle of addiction and homelessness and arrest for really petty crimes. And 
he ended up uh, dying by suicide in uh, a state correctional institute in Salem when he was 22. So he would go through this process of being in jail, being out of jail, um, ending up in emergency services. Maybe they stabilize him for 72 hours, give him some short-term medication, tell him he can have a follow-up appointment, but that appointment is three, five, six months down the road. And in that time, he's trying to figure out how to take care of himself and kind of quiet the things in his mind. And it really goes back to um, one thing a police officer told his mom when he was a teen and he had ran away from home and she kept asking the officer, like, we're trying so desperately to get him into care. Like, can you please help me? And he said the only way to assure he gets the proper mental health treatment is to get arrested and for a charge to stick and then have court ordered uh, mental health treatment. And, you know, it's so messed up. It is messed up. And that's why we need to talk about um, yeah, preventative community mental health care. And that's what we're trying to focus on in our ongoing investigation. All right. Well, let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, more on the state of mental health care in Oregon. Can we just, like, blame all of this on the Reagan administration? Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I feel like, and for those who are too young, uh, the Reagan administration basically deinstitutionalized mental health care across America uh, for federally funded, uh, in, you know, facilities. And that's essentially what gave rise to, like, a, a homeless, like, homelessness. Like, that's because they literally just, like, let them out. They're like, out you go. Uh you know, capitalism is going to save us all. God bless. That's what basically happened. And that kind of also just that trickle down for sure um, to the state level uh, for a lot of, you know, uh, institutions. And I, I'm curious, like, does Oregon have an even longer history of deinstitutionalizing mental health care than like the 80s? Or was is that kind of in line? We're definitely in line with other states in terms of shutting down our hospitals. Uh, and like many other states, we didn't have a robust plan of how to catch the fallout from that. And while we do spend on par what other states do in terms of mental health now, there was a long time where we did not spend an adequate amount of money uh, for community mental health programs to pick up that slack of closing those hospitals. And that just caused a decades, decades long problem. And you know, our lack of spending wasn't just for mental health care. There was a time when corners were cut in Oregon for all health care spending. And that's something that's going to take a long time to untangle ourselves from. It's not going to, you know, uh, resolve itself in just a year or one legislative session. We're trying to undo our whole history here. Yeah. And you also, I mean, I know that the Oregonian did outline like in September uh, how moving patients out of these larger psychiatric hospitals and into treatment in their own communities pretty much failed. Like that just, that's not going to be sustainable. In that report, like what was the community support? Was it other, you know, facilities or was it just like, I don't know, like drop-ins? Like what was the the plan there? Yeah, I I think what people imagine would happen is that, you know, we'd open more like outpatient mental health clinics because we had discovered um, psychiatric medication. So that meant that people could manage their symptoms at 
home and visit a doctor once in a while versus needing that full-time care in a hospital. But we um, really failed in providing access to those things. We didn't build enough and we haven't made it accessible ever. Wow. You could see so many parallels between like all the other social ills that Oregon is experiencing, you know? Um, Mm. So all of this news feels dire, uh, but there has been some progress that has come out since your story was published uh, concerning more beds being available for those experiencing like a mental health crisis. Like, give me something, give me something to hold on to, Nicole. For sure. Um, Yeah, the new beds are a great step forward. That's part of our biggest need is that we need longer term beds where people can stabilize. We definitely need way more. And, you know, the state's doing a study to kind of understand how many we need. Um, also, some other good things that have popped up in the past year, the Multnomah County Behavioral Health Resource Center that's downtown, you know, that kind of had a rocky start, but it's a really great resource for people. So we need more of that. We saw some legislation in this most recent session cross, make it to the finish line. We got more funding to staff our crisis line. Uh, We made Narcan more available um, because as folks are not able to access care and turning to self-medicating, you know, we're seeing the fentanyl crisis overlap with this. So making Narcan available will save lives. And we're talking about more education in schools. Um, But yeah, those are a lot of things to treat symptoms. But not the root cause, essentially, is what you're saying, yeah. We need way more beds. You know, those new beds you spoke on were great. We need more of that. We need to pay our workers better so that they want to serve in the community health sector and not just treat rich people that can pay them cash. And we need to be thoughtful of preventing worker burnout. And we need more preventative care so that people can get treated at the forefront and They don't have to feel like they have to go through the criminal justice system to finally find care. Yeah. Well, one last thing. Has anything moved, you know, with OHP? Yeah, there is going to be a essentially like an audit coming up that more deeply looks at if the parity law is uh, working. And so that's that investigation by the state is ongoing right now. So hopefully we see movement from that. Uh, And then as the state tries to understand more about what the need is and what kind of beds we need, hopefully we see more funding for that in the coming years. Well, thanks, Nicole, for taking the time to to walk us through that. And thanks for all the work that you're doing. Yeah. And thank you guys for helping people understand it more (laughs) because it's tough to read long chunky articles that kind of taste like broccoli not dessert (laughs) and now for your microdose of news the university of oregon is building a sustainable textile facility near its new northeast portland campus it's part of an academic partnership with ntx a Singapore-based company that makes environmentally friendly textiles with waterless dyeing technology. The multi-million dollar facility will create a few dozen jobs, further cementing Portland's reputation as a sportswear industry leader and hopefully attracting other research and development facilities. And a Washington state senator says security screenings at PDX failed to find an unloaded pistol in his carry-on bag. 
Senator Jeff Wilson of Longview, Washington, was arrested after the gun was discovered at a Hong Kong airport. He tells OPB it was an honest mistake. Senator Wilson is out on bail and awaiting a court date next week. Meanwhile, every bottle of wine I've tried to sneak on board has been confiscated. For even more local news and events, sign up for our daily newsletter, Hey Portland. We'll throw a link in the show notes. That's all for today here on CityCast Portland. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend, rate, or leave us a good review. It really does help us out. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slim's. <laughs>